Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He, he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we consider Matthew's account now of the Passion narrative, that is the death of Jesus Christ, 
there are two things for us to reflect upon this Good Friday. The mockery of Jesus' death and the magnificence of Jesus' death. Two words that we don't often put together, mockery and magnificence. But two words that very much come together here. First, the mockery. 18 verses of it. More than any other of the gospel writers. The gospel of John does not mention it at all. Matthew's account is full of it. Did you notice there were just half a verse on the crucifixion itself? Verse 35. When they had crucified him. That is it. That is just five words about this incredibly cruel and agonizing form of execution. Where iron nails were driven through the most sensitive nerve centers of your wrists and ankles. And the constant torture that would be felt as the full weight of your body is pulling down on the nails. And then the breaking of legs so you can't push up to breathe. Death by suffocation. It is a horrific form of execution. There's just five words. There's just half a verse on this. The rest of this section, both before his crucifixion and after, is about his mockery. Now, why is that? Well, look, let's have a look at the mockery first. If you glance down to verses 27 to 31. This is before he's crucified, and we read of the soldiers mocking him. Mocking him for claiming to be a king. There's a whole company around him. That is up to 600 men. Can you imagine that? Being in the middle of all these people surrounding you and teasing you and insulting you and mocking you. They strip him. They give him this mock robe, this mock crown of thorns on his head, this mock staff in his hands. And they say to him in verse 29, well, they kneel in front of him and mock him. Hail, King of the Jews. What a weak and pathetic king you are. And the mocking continues after the crucifixion in verses 38 to 44. First, we read of passers-by in verse 39 who hurled their insults at him. These are just everyday people going about their ordinary business and they're joining in the mocking. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. You look nothing like a God. In verse 41 we read, In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones who studied the Old Testament scriptures, taught about the Messiah, were looking forward to him coming as saviour. But they can't see it. And they join in this mockery of Jesus Christ. Finally, in verse 44, even those crucified with him, the rebels, the criminals, also heap insults on him. Have that phrase, misery loves company. You'd expect some Sympathy here from the criminals being crucified with them, this horrific form of execution they were going under, but Jesus gets none of it. He just gets more of the same, more of this rejection, more of this mockery. Do you see 
in Matthew's account of the crucifixion, the comprehensive nature of this mockery towards Jesus Christ, Jew, Gentile, leader, lackey, commoner, criminal, everyone united in this chorus of mockery. Why? Why does Matthew's account place so much focus on it? Well, look, on one level, it shows us that the mocking of Jesus we see around us today is nothing new. The scorn of the new atheists, the mocking of the media, the insults that perhaps you face from your friends for following Jesus Christ, it's nothing new. Don't be surprised by it. If Jesus was treated like this, how do you expect followers of Jesus to be treated? And in fact, back in chapter 16 of this very gospel, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. What does that mean? This is part of what it means. It means mockery. Don't be surprised by it. Do you ever think to yourself, if only I'm like gracious enough, loving enough, compassionate enough to people everyone will respect me, even though, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Was there anyone more compassionate, more loving, more gracious than Jesus himself? Throughout this gospel, he has been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He's been healing all the diseases and illnesses that he's seen. He's been reaching out in perfect love to all who come to him, and this is how they treated Jesus. Do you think it's going to be any different for you if you claim to follow him today. Do not be surprised by it. But on another level, uh, Matthew focuses on the mockery to actually prove who Jesus is. One of the great themes of this particular gospel is one of fulfillment. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah that all of the Old Testament scriptures have been pointing forward towards. Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who had this impression of the Messiah to be this powerful king who would rescue them from Roman rule. And so they see this, what seems to be this weak, pathetic king dying a criminal's death. They're thinking, how can this be our Messiah? And so Matthew is going out of his way to prove who Jesus is, to show how this mockery um, fulfills Old Testament prophecies and scriptures about it. Listen to this one from Psalm 22. I've picked Psalm 22 because this is the very psalm Jesus will quote from in a moment in verse 46. A psalm all about God's king, all about the Messiah, what would happen to him when he comes. This is from verse 6 of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, they shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do you see? Jesus fulfilling the scriptures. Scriptures that were written hundreds of years previously about what would happen when the Messiah comes. Scriptures that clearly said everyone would mock him and scorn him. 
What makes Jesus so special, or one of the many things that makes Jesus so special, is that even in his death, he is fulfilling all the scriptures written about the Messiah. And Matthew is saying to his doubters, the doubters at the time, and any doubters today, particularly with a Jewish background, look, this mockery proves who he is. You think this mocking, you think you're mocking him because he, he doesn't look like a king? No, this mocking proves he is a king. The king, God's king, the Messiah, and the saviour we all need. Which is the third thing this mockery shows. Because what a tragic picture of humanity we are given here that it would treat God's king like this. The religious leaders, the secular authorities, passers-by, criminals, everyone's at it, everyone's mocking. What is Matthew saying? Everyone needs a saviour. Religious people, secular people, passers-by, you and me. Everyone needs a saviour and, you know, it's worth reflecting upon that today. All the times that we join in this mockery, perhaps explicitly, perhaps implicitly, perhaps keeping our head down about Jesus, with conversations at work, perhaps embarrassed about him or certain things that he teaches. Worth reflecting upon our sin the way we join in this today, our sin that puts Jesus on the cross. Well, if that's the mockery of Jesus' death, the second thing for us to reflect upon this Good Friday is the magnificence of Jesus' death. Because Jesus doesn't stop the mocking, which he was perfectly able to do. He endures it. He saved others, they said, but he couldn't save himself. And that was the point. He let himself be treated like this so he could save us. And again, there are unique details in Matthew's account of Jesus' death. Did you notice the earth shaking, the rocks splitting, the tombs breaking open, bodies rising? Clearly, this is no ordinary death. Something hugely significant is going on, something magnificent, something literally earth-shattering. Now, what is going on here as Jesus dies? Notice first the darkness in verse 45. Darkness over the whole land. We are told it's from noon, when the sun is at its brightest, there is darkness. From noon until three in the afternoon, that is three hours of darkness. This is not a few minutes of a solar eclipse. And it is darkness, we are told, over all the land. This is not a shadow over a little bit from a palm tree. This is supernatural darkness over the whole land. What does it signify? What is going on? Verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, laba sapakathani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, this darkness over the whole land is God forsaking Jesus. God the Father abandoning his Son. The judgment of God's anger at sin falling upon Jesus Christ. 
Think back to the time of the Exodus. Think of the plagues. What was plague number nine? It was darkness. Darkness where? Over the whole land. Why? Because God's angel of judgment, judgment for sin, was falling upon the people. But where is God's judgment falling now? Not upon the people, but upon Jesus Christ. Because magnificently, lovingly, he is bearing God's judgment in our place. For all our sin, all our mockery, all our embarrassment of Jesus and ignoring of him in our lives. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. No, that is precisely the point. It is only as Jesus has forsaken, only then can any human being be forgiven. And that is what he has done for you and me. 2,000 years ago, on this cross, for three hours, as darkness came over the whole land. In the film, Guardians of the Galaxy, don't know if you've seen it, it's a personal favourite of mine, shows you how cultured I am. There is a character called Groot. He is a tree-like person. All he can say is three words. I am Groot. How are you? I am Groot. What's the plan for today? I am Groot. That's all he says. Three words throughout the film. Final scene. Five guardians are in a spaceship. It is hurtling towards Earth out of control. It is going to crash. They can't escape. They can't stop it. There's nothing they can do. Death is certain. At this point, Groot who's this tree-like person, starts extending his sort of branch arms and forms this protective shield around the other four guardians. His closest friend, Rocket, knows what Groot is doing, realises that he is giving up his life for the sake of others. Instead of saving himself, he's saving them. And with tears in his eyes, he turns to his friend and pleads with him to reconsider. And for a surprisingly poignant moment for a Marvel comic superhero film, This character, who up to this point can only ever say three words, I am Groot, turns to his four friends and says, we are Groot. And the spaceship crashes into the ground, Groot dies, and all the rest survive. Now, as I say, I find it a particularly poignant moment in the film, maybe you don't, but there is something that is quite moving when someone gives their life for another human being. And you're watching this film, and, well, look, I think to myself, my goodness, if I ever found myself in a position like that, I'd love to have someone do that for me. Don't you? And I hope you can see, with this account of Matthew, that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. Our sin has consequences. Eternal consequences. Our sin means we face death, we face judgment. Jesus Christ came to earth and died so that we could survive. He bore God's wrath at sin so we could be forgiven our sin. He is abandoned. He is forsaken. So we can have our relationship with God restored. Not just now, but through death and into eternity. And just look at what this relationship with God means in verses 51 to 53. At that moment that very moment that Jesus gives up his spirit and dies, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Up to this point in the Bible story, if you wanted a relationship with God, it had to be through the temple, through the sacrificial system, through the high priest, who could only go through this curtain into the Holy of Holies where God was once a year. But not anymore. Not now that Jesus Christ has died for sin. Now the temple has been torn from top to bottom. And there is direct access to God through Jesus Christ. No more sacrifices. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. No more human priests. Jesus is our perfect high priest. No more temple. Jesus himself is the presence of God. And if you know him, you know God. And you can have direct, full, perfect access to him at any time, wherever you are. Because Jesus has fully and finally paid for sin. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have that access, you have it now. Not just that. End of verse 51. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. I mean, can you imagine it if you were there? And you get to see Granny again. Or perhaps a loved one who's died young and you can hold them in your arms again. This is the stuff dreams are made of. This is resurrection life. This is death no longer being the end. Someone came into church last week wanting to see a priest. I happened to be around. I got chatting to him. Their life had taken a terrible turn for the worse. It would be inappropriate for me to share any of the details now. But a phrase that kept coming up over and over was, I wish things could go back to how they were before. I wish things could go back to how they were before. Do you ever think that? Something similar about a relationship, about a job, about your health. I wish things could go back to the way they were before. Do you see, because of what Jesus Christ has achieved on the cross, one day, things are not just going to go back to how they were before. It's going to be far better than that. Everything in this universe is going to be put right. Every friendship. All of society. The whole world. And it seems the soldiers suddenly have a change of heart in verse 54. Because when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. There is no mocking Jesus now. Just this sudden assured realization of who this man really is the son of God these are Roman centurion these are Gentiles they don't have the Old Testament scriptures they don't have any of this Jewish context and yet even they know who Jesus is the son of God the savior we all need now at the end of the day there are only two types of people in the world those who mock Jesus and those who magnify Jesus. Those who mock Jesus and will have to face the consequences of their sin themselves or those who magnify Jesus and let him pay the consequences of our sin himself. 
And so on this Good Friday, what better question for me to ask you, which type of person are you? Could be you've been coming along to church for many, many years, but you are yet to grasp who Jesus Christ really is. You see him as a good person. You see him as a moral example to follow. You see him as someone you need to obey. All true things. But do you see him as the saviour we all need? Have you yet to grasp the magnificence of his death that he would die in your place for your sin? And if that is you, well, today is as good a day as any to come to him as your personal saviour. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And there'll be an opportunity for all of us to do that in a moment with the Lord's Supper. And for those of us here who are clinging to Jesus Christ as our saviour, well, look, let's continue to magnify him in our lives. Let's continue to be thankful for all that he has done for us. Familiarity breeds contempt. May it never be said of Jesus' death when it comes to us. He really does love us. He really did die for us. He really is 100% for us. Let us encourage one another with these truths. Let us continue to stand up for Jesus. Let us not be surprised when the mockery comes. And let's keep sharing him and holding out this same self-giving, sacrificial love to others in the same way he showed that love to us. Well, look, I'm going to pause there and we're going to have a few minutes quiet reflection, a time for you to pray to God yourself. I'm going to suggest to magnify him, to praise him, to confess your sins to him, to thank him for his death for you, to ask him to continue to see who he really is, the saviour we all need and the saviour we all have. So a couple of minutes quiet now for you to spend time with the Lord in prayer.